I was an explorer once. Captain Sam Stone of the Surveyor. It was good. Hell, it was awesome. The truth is, they don't care about who we used to be or what we wanted to do. But if they thought this was gonna be easy, they came to the wrong fucking planet. Hello there, welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. It's Thursday, the 16th of July. My name is still Alex Hokuli. Alpha Bunga Bunga is myself, George Hoare, and Philip Cunliffe. And this episode is produced by George Hoare, who's going to speak in just a minute, because uh, what we're talking about today is gaming, a subject I know practically nothing about. Um, but George does. George George knows a little bit more about gaming. Well, um, I'm not sure any of us could realistically describe ourselves uh, as gamers. Um, no, you play games, George, like all the time, I have particularly a, I in have lockdown. A, in fact, you've a, talked about it like you've actually hung up on me um, in order to play a game online with your true. friends because that's, that's the way true. you interact socially. No, I have, I have a ludic spirit. I have a... Uh, no, I, I, um, I have to say during, during lockdown, I think it has been one of the few means of sociality left play Dungeons and Dragons for the first time and is actually extremely fun. Um, so geeky, so, so geeky. Yeah, but I don't, you know, I say it's now almost geeky to say that it's geeky or it's, it's not cool to say that it's not cool. Um, and I guess I've probably had the most games consoles out of all of us over the course of my life. Um, so yeah, but I think, you know, we, we should all be able to, to ask questions about this um, important part of popular culture, right? We all know what, what games are both board games as well as computer games so yeah i think it should be a good a good discussion yeah i mean we haven't really spoken about this form of i don't even know what you, you you're meant to call it is it a form of media a form of storytelling is it um a type of play that you put i mean i guess we'll we'll discuss all of this i guess uh, that's why we're getting jonas yeah. on yeah uh and so yeah we're going to be talking to jonas kiratsis uh in just a moment about this and also about Greek politics, because obviously uh, they go so well together. Um, no, we're going to take an opportunity to have a little bit uh, of a chat in the latter uh, bit of this episode um, about what happened with Syriza, about Greek politics, about what next uh, with the Greek left, because we've discussed these matters sometimes online with Jonas and uh, take the opportunity to do it, you know, um, on a podcast. Um but yeah, I mean, just on, on gaming, I think, at least on my part, I, I just want to come clear that my I have strong prejudices against gaming and gamers. <laughs> I, I just think it's um, a waste of time. It'd be personally a time suck. And I don't play games because I'm scared that if I were to buy a console, I'd never read a book again. I'd get really drawn in. It would just, I would just, you know, smoke weed, eat pizza and play games the whole time. Um, those are my prejudices. Don't I think it's better do, to come clear about these things. Or, <laughs> don't you do that already, but just watch football instead. <laughs> the, uh, are, I mean, that yeah. seems to be essentially all that you've done for the last few weeks since like they started doing football again. <laughs> yeah, change you know, to reschedule our discussions yeah. and meetings around football. So I wasn't going it, to say that, but isn't football also a game? Whoa. <laughs> so um, mind blown moment no, I, there. <laughs> no, I think um, it's it's yeah. I, I so think we should. This is a good moment for me to, to say I am not into. Um, it's been a very long time since I've played any video games. Um, 
uh, I get the last time would have been uh, during high school, I guess, or maybe maybe uh, maybe the first couple of years of uh, university. And I hate football. In fact, I absolutely loathe football. So I'm morally superior to both of you. You see. We, all three of us have made us. All three of us have made ourselves really unpopular, but for quite distinct reasons here. So that's that's good. <laughs> yeah, we've all we've all alienated distinct constituencies <laughs> of our listeners. So, all right, very good. Yeah, let's. Should we get on with the? Uh, should we call call Jonas? Jonas, thank you uh, very much for for joining us. Um, so yeah, maybe just to kick things off. Could you tell us a little bit about the process of game design and and development? How does it um, how does it actually work? Are there any differences to say being a writer in the creative process? Um, well, so it kind of depends on what you're doing. Like I'm a game writer uh, primarily right now, so I, I handle the writing side of things. I I create narratives and dialogue and all of that sort of thing. I used to also design games. I still occasionally design games, but those are separate if interconnected uh, sort of processes. Um, so writing a game is, well, it's very much like and very much not like writing a novel or writing a screenplay um, because, well, because it's interactive, but also because it's, um, well, not to be too pretentious, but um, I think that um, the kind of narratives we create in games are, are spatial. They, um, you know, the difference between a game and a movie is that in a game you can walk into a character's uh, bedroom and check out mm. what books they have, um, and that's interesting. You can create narrative with all kinds of elements everywhere, uh, so it's not just what the characters are saying, but it's the environment. It's it's uh, you know you can create a poster, put it on a wall. Mm -hmm. Player can look at it. Player may also not look at it. So you need to account for the possibility that they're not going to catch certain things. Um, so it it has a much bigger element of world building, but of course also for accounting uh, of accounting for different possibilities. A, a story can go this way. A story mm -hmm. can go that way, and it has to interact with all these other elements. Um, of production so you know um, what mm. can we program or what does the gameplay need that's often of course the big um, the big issues like well we want the game to be fun and we had this the designers had this idea they're going to do this oh that doesn't fit into the narrative I've created in the slightest okay I'm going to rewrite half the game to make this work for you guys mm. so um, maybe just to just for our, our listeners you know that some of these very open narratives what, what are some of the games that you've you've worked on and how does this how does this actually I guess work in in practice well, okay, so um, it really depends on the game. That's one of the things about games. It's it's really not one thing. Uh, gaming, games, it's not one. It's kind of one medium, but it's very broad. So you can have incredibly different experiences. Um, I'm working on Serious Sam 4 currently, which I'm co-writing which uh, with my wife. Uh, that one is a fairly linear kind of story with you know cinematic bits and and there you can go off and have some you know side adventures but that's fairly fairly similar to a screenplay um but then you have something like uh, the talos principle which is a game about um exploration in many ways where mm. you talk to characters and you make choices so you um okay i didn't write that part of the game where you make all the choices but um but you you interact with another character and that character has opinions and challenges your opinions and then the choices you make uh do i go against this person do i do i work with this person mm. um they 
determine how the rest of the story goes. So obviously we need to account for that. We need to plan uh, how that how that happens. Now sometimes you have critics who say like, oh, but but if anything can happen, then the story isn't really a proper story. You know, what if Romeo doesn't die in Romeo and Juliet? Um, but of course the point is we still control what's going to happen. Mm. That's that's what we do. That's what game writing is. We determine what the paths are that you can take. Um, inside a story, and then we try to make all of those versions appealing mm. um, and, and interesting in different ways. So one player may have this experience, another player may have that experience. Um, so mm. Talos Principle is very much a game about sort of doubt and and faith, and you could you know you could play it as somebody who never questions anything, and you're going to get a different experience, a different ending. I think than yeah. someone who questions anything. Is, I mean, my quite limited understanding of, of the history of, of games is that this open, this kind of world building or very open kind of essentially your, your choices are much more, um, much less constrained. So you can actually have an entirely, almost an entirely different experience of playing a game from somebody else who's playing the same game. This is quite recent. Is that is, is that right or not? I mean, has basically increased um, computing power allowed, a, 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 I guess, a wider, more open story? Not really, because older games used to just, you know, use text, uh, pure text, or they used to. Uh, I mean, certainly it's something that we maybe do more now than we used to. Um, but I think it's uh, people got interested in that pretty quickly um, because it is sort of the inherent appeal of the medium is you could do this or you could do that. So immediately people came in who were used to, say, pen and paper role-playing, and they wanted that kind of thing, too, where you could make a choice and then the story would go in a different way. And so that has always been part of it. But, of course, the more um, sort of space and resources we have, the more we can do it. Um, But it's also a thing that's very hard to do because the more elaborate a game gets... Uh, the harder it is to pull off. So when you had a game that you know three people made or one person made, where the the uh, differences were in what text was displayed, that didn't cost very much. When you have uh, a game that costs millions of dollars to make, and you have to hire an entire cast of of actors to play the pa- the, the parts, and then suddenly you have two versions, so you have ten versions, um, the cost goes up. Um, yeah, quite a bit. No, I, uh, yeah, I think it's it's quite striking these days when you complete a, a game, particularly quite an open uh, game like like Breath of the Wild, and you see the the credits roll, and it's yeah. much longer than a than a film, and that's hardly, I guess, surprising because you have several different, you know, discrete uh, journeys you can take through the through the game or different experiences you can have. But I mean, maybe just to go back to the the Talos principle, um, this yeah, so. I guess a question on the philosophical importance of games or or to put it in a slightly um, pretentious way, maybe what can be done philosophically with with games? Um, What do you you know, how do you see this? Because it is quite striking that particular game. You say it's about doubt and choice and, and, you know, it seems like a lot of existential um, considerations come in there. Is this something that you are are trying to achieve, I guess, essentially a philosophical message? in games like that. Oh, and sorry, just to butt in, if you could also explain to listeners uh, what that game involves, what it's about, um, for those who are unfamiliar. Okay, so explaining that game is going to be a bit difficult um, because it's fairly elaborate. Uh, so it's this sort of science fiction story that plays very much with a sort of biblical creation myth, but is about artificial intelligence. 
Um, and I would I would have to explain a lot to explain the actual plot, but it's very much uh, sort of you have kind of a god figure, a devil figure, but it's all within a simulation, um, and it's all about the survival of the human species via artificial intelligence. Um, it's it's very much a game about materialism. So um, the the Talos principle that uh, is. Um, is a fictional philosophical principle invented by a fictional Greek philosopher that I made up um, based on the uh, figure of Talos in Greek mythology, who is a kind of robot who, uh, when he bled out, um, sort of died. And uh, and the idea is that are humans not very much like that, i.e. you cannot live without your blood, so are you not also a machine? Um so, but from there, it kind of goes into this whole complex sort of uh, um, depiction of trying to become an intelligent being and hovering between faith and doubt. How much faith do I have in sort of the figures of authority around me? Um, it, uh, it's, it's partially inspired by William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. So it's very much about synthesis between, you know, these, these extremes, these... Um, of, of faith and doubt, you need to have faith in humanity. Um, it's a very humanist game, I would say. Uh, it's fairly elaborate in the sort of mythological and literary things that it does. And yes, that is something that I uh, certainly am very interested in. Now, I wouldn't say that I'm looking for a philosophical message. Um, I rather dislike where art has gone these days where things have become very sort of simplified with just like, here's what this is about. It has to say the good moral things or it's bad. Um, yeah, yeah. I, it certainly has beliefs behind it. It is, like I said, very humanist, very materialist. I think it's, I don't know if it's the first game to quote Trotsky, but um, it's certainly one <laughs> of very few games to quote Trotsky. Um, is that is, is, is that a would you say one of the major problems with the the games industry today not enough quoting of trotsky definitely yes yes so I, but that's a, could that's we, a big could we, problem could we Just ask to, what the quote is or is that giving too much away James? oh it's this thing okay no i i i'm you know i don't remember it perfectly it's this thing about um being uh, uh missing a train and um sort of whether whatever your opinion about reality is if you miss the train you've still missed it so material reality is sort of inescapable, um, which is sort of one of the recurring themes of that thing is that no matter what we choose to believe, there is such a thing as an objective reality that we just can't escape. Um, and, and that's one of the sort of central ideas of the game that it struggles with, mm. that, that that's just true. No matter, what, no matter how pretty the beliefs are that we have, no matter what we tell ourselves, no matter how nice it sounds, um, that's the baseline. You know, if you don't have blood in your body, you're going to die no matter what you think about the soul and, and all of those things. And then where do we go from that? How do we find some sort of mm. meaning? Good. Um, I think good, good life advice anyway. You do, you do need blood as far as I, I know. Yes. But just, just before passing over to Phil for a question, I guess, more on, the, the, on politics and games, just to hear, hear you kind of describe it the way you were talking about that game. It sounds basically not dissimilar to a kind of a sci-fi novel in the sense of here of, of presenting a, a structure a narrative and then the the player or the reader goes through it and it's not without being didactic there is certainly a way to present a certain story um which 
doesn't straightforwardly illustrate concepts or illustrate ideas, but there's certainly a a kind of an aspiration to 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 do that. Yes, yes, definitely. I mean, it does in this case because you're rather directly arguing with another character. The sort of devil figure of the of the game is someone you interact with via these text terminals. So you are actually kind of arguing back and forth about some philosophical points. So it is trying to sort of jolt you into thinking, but it doesn't necessarily force you into one particular path or into just one interpretation of these events. There has to be a sort of literary, uh, I don't know, width. There has to be space, in my opinion, in in art. Uh, art should not just be, here's a bunch of political points. Like even uh, my perhaps my most political game that people used to know me before I did uh, Talos. I mean, the thing that I was known for before I did Talos was uh, The Sea Will Claim Everything, which is a game about, well, not about, but very much inspired by the... Um, the crisis in Europe and uh, Greece and Ireland and uh, uh, all of these things. So it kind of transposes a lot of elements of this economic crisis and the political crisis into this fantastical world. But even though that's a a very sort of pro-revolutionary kind of pro-socialist, I don't know, game, at the same time, it's not just that and it's not as simple as that. Like, I don't don't believe in just having a message because that's just... That's not art, right? Yeah. Um, art I is how it's... you translate these things through a kind of visionary process. And again, that sounds pretentious, but I mean, how else do you, how else do you actually talk about art in a way that is meaningful if it's not that? Uh, mm-hmm. You have to kind of say, okay, it, it, it is that. It has this visionary quality where I translate it in a way that I can't really mm-hmm. do in any other way. Like, it's not an essay. It's not an no, essay it... put into a digital interactive form. I think, and that's, you know, my experience of, of playing the game, that's kind of why it's in, enjoyable that it's, I think if you were to have a really straightforward philosophical message, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be very much fun as a game because I don't know how exactly you'd, you'd get that across. Um, but no, Phil, I think you had I mean, a point sorry, on, just to, oh, I just sorry, wanted yeah. to add something that I don't think that that's the thing about games. Like it's not about making the game less fun. It's to me, it's fundamentally about art. Like, Whenever I finish writing the novel that I'm writing, or if I work in other media, I still think that uh, reducing it to a sort of just message is didactic and awful. And and it should be, it can be very political, it can be very philosophical, it can engage deeply with these things. I think uh, several of the games that I've made really do that. They are very much about politics and philosophy. I just think it's it has to be something richer and more interesting to engage with um and speaking in the language of art rather than just uh here's a story about why racism is bad or here's a story about why capitalism sucks um yeah those games exist and they're boring as hell yeah without ambiguity yeah and i agree with the messages right but Mm. like that's not art that's just a message pasted onto whatever movie or a thing are there um are there games that you would say are um uh, philosophically, politically interesting in the more kind of complex way that you suggest at the moment? Um, that <laughs> um, let me think. I'm not a very big fan of most games nowadays. Um, there certainly have been games in the history of games that have engaged with um, interesting ideas. It feels a bit weird because, of course, I know a lot of the people involved so um i don't want to like be too negative about a specific thing or ignore some other thing um 
but in general I would say there's definitely games that that do interesting things philosophically or politically but it's always a struggle um it's always a struggle because of just the, the the conditions in which we work, which is true, I think, of any art nowadays, almost any art, mm. um, especially anything that's like a big production. Like uh, there's just so many constraints um, that it's, so they, it's it's not always possible yeah. to realize that to the degree that you would that you would like to. I think mm. we have on a couple of games that we've made, and I'm very very proud of that. And there are other things that I think are very very interesting and i'm pretty sure i'm forgetting something very cool right now <laughs> so just just to put you on the on the spot a little bit here what what would you recommend to say um one Me. or two <laughs> someone, say, someone who's looking for politics, a more a, a, yeah a podcaster and a, a, a <laughs> politics podcaster who's a bit skeptical about <laughs> some games um but no, kind gonna, of no, I, is, I would is, say is picked up picked up no, no, when no. you when you talk I would about say, I would say, interesting games i would say even more broadly uh jonas um what would you offer as kind of uh as kind of a start for more complex and interesting thought-provoking games well i mean obviously i would recommend my own games very good very good um, <laughs> Like, like genuinely, I think, that, uh, without trying to be like horribly arrogant, um, I've made a couple of things I think are accessible to people who are not really into. Okay, so this is this is complicated, right? So some of the best gaming experiences are very long, um, and this is this is maybe one of the difficulties that some of the most enjoyable and and interesting experiences in games are um, are just they're like 60 hours of gameplay and they require a certain familiarity yeah. with the medium. Um, like honestly with, without being maybe the most philosophically amazing games, but there's a series of games called a uh, stalker. They're kind of, sort of ripoffs <clears throat> of, of the, um, the Tarkovsky movie and the, uh, uh, the, the novel, um, come on, uh, roadside picnic. Uh, and they're all about going into the zone and the, the sort of the strange environment of that. And what those games manage to evoke as an experience to me is so superb. But, you know, they're fucking hard. So um, for someone who's not really familiar with that, that's not accessible. Yeah. Uh, in the same game, in the same way, sorry, in the same way, there's a, a game called uh, Far Cry 2. It's, a, it's a, actually a very popular series. But the, the second one of those is a game about... Um, a civil war in Africa in a small African country, um, and you're sort of a mercenary in that war, and it's an incredibly ugly game. Like the experience is hideous. Like, all, you know, as opposed to every other game, like the missions all are like, yeah, go burn that food, go blow up those, go blow up that medicine, um, and by the end of that experience, you're so sick of the, of the war, um, and it, it really does that incredibly well. But you know, even people who are really into games don't play through uh, that entire game because it's just such an exhausting experience. Um, so some of the things that I find the most remarkable in, in sort of what they achieve are very hard to recommend uh, to someone who's not already familiar with the medium. And that's kind of one of our problems, I think. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, to, to go really deep into the, the interesting stuff, um, there's a couple of, there's a very 
famous series of games, the, the Fallout games. Those are very formative for me. They have a thousand flaws, right? But they depict this post-apocalyptic world, and the later ones are completely useless to me. But the, the first couple of them, just it's, it's fascinating to just go into this post-apocalyptic world and interact with the people there and sort of see various stories. And like I said, again, they have a million flaws, so maybe they're not the perfect recommendation. But, but again, it takes this kind of investment... Um, and familiarity, which makes games more insular, I suppose. Um, so sorry yeah. if I'm drifting off and not talking about the. No, 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 no it's, it's, all. I well, think it's, it's all because it ties in. Um, yeah. It kind of segues into the question or the next question that I had, um, which is to do, which um, is uh, if I, if I may be as little self-indulgent, is to do with one of my own projects and. Um, which is to say Lenin Lives, the book that I published mm -hmm. in 2017. Um, yeah, I have read it. On the centenary of the Russian Revolution and trying to portray, um, trying to portray uh, several different scenarios in a way, in a way while also combining it with a particular account of um, social theory and the classical Marxian tradition. Um and I suppose one of the struggles I had with writing it was um, trying to kind of juggle multiple timelines, a fictional timeline of a, a world in which the Russian Revolution had succeeded in globalizing and um, had successfully precipitated a tremendous boost to the arc of human progress over the course of the 20th century, alongside a narrative about our actually existing 20th century of all the um, the terrible bloodshed and barbarism that has uh, that happened over that um, in that period, and at the same time uh, used kind of intertwining that with an account with a theoretical account of um, like I say Marxian social theory. So anyway, the point being, I suppose, uh, while I was writing it, I kept on feeling that I was coming up against the limits of the book as a form. I mean, the kind of all the what could be communicated effectively through a book. And I think it was only when I finished it that it occurred to me that perhaps um, the whole idea, the premise of the of the notion that um, the failure of the Russian Revolution has produced a terrible um, uh, that we live in the kind of in the post dystopian world of the failure of the Russian Revolution, and that can be consistently inferred and demonstrated um, through the history of the 20th century and the early the 20 years of our own century, um, and that it seemed to me that perhaps the best kind of format or vehicle for that idea would in fact be a game. Um, and obviously, I don't know anything enough about um, uh, computer games to be able to have a sense of how that could be constructed. But like I say, the my frustrations with trying to contain it in the vehicle of a book and the difficulties I had in um, uh, kind of intertwining those threads made me feel that perhaps perhaps there was a different way to to communicate those ideas more effectively. And listening to you talk just now about um, how important the experience of the game is to communicating certain kinds of um, ideas, such as interacting with people in a post-apocalyptic scenario, um, brings back the that no, you know, brings the idea back to me. So I guess if I, to, anyway, to boil it down um, to a question, to a single question, is. Uh, could you have a good game about the Russian Revolution, do you think? Is it possible? Um, 
So absolutely, I've thought about it a million times. Um, it's something I, I have considered very, very, very many times myself. Um, so uh, yeah, it it would definitely be possible. You could do it in different ways. So you could do something like um, uh, like an interactive narrative, of course, where you are a character during the Russian Revolution, um, and uh, and the choices you make. You know, uh, you could be a leading figure. Um, uh, Bolshevik and the the choices you make affect how things pan out, which would be um, sort of the 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 narrative version of doing that, which where the strands are very defined, the story strands of where it can go are defined by the designer very clearly. But you could also, if you had a lot of time, write some kind of simulation. You could make a strategy game that is okay. You you know you just won the Russian Revolution. You're in charge. You're Lenin. Yeah. What do you do now? Um, and then just have a strategy game. And of course, that's uh, an interesting aspect of games um, that gets discussed occasionally, usually in an annoying way, because all leftist discussion of games is generally dreadful. Um, <laughs> but uh, so the parameters of the simulation are what's very political. Um, so so games can sometimes have a political dimension that's not clear. So, um, so for example, there's a game called Fate of the World, which is about um, juggling political decisions in order to prevent global warming. And I feel that that's a game that uh, it's got a very elaborate simulation based on a lot of scientific data. Uh, but of course, the you can't end capitalism in it. Um, so, it, yeah. in, a, in a way, it tells you that it's incredibly hard to ever stop global warming. Um, but but that's because it limits you to certain decisions and it also models decisions in a certain political way. Um, And in the same way, this, this, this would say a lot about what you see the world like. So um, uh, for example, if you introduce more democracy into the Soviet union, um, you know, all power to the Soviets, what does that do? Like, uh, does that cause disruption and the yeah. bad guys win? Or do you that way actually save the Soviet Union? So, um, yeah. which is, you know, what I would think. But but still, that that kind of expresses uh, politics in a way that's not just, you know, making some kind of obvious statement, but still the the, cons- uh, the constraints of, w- of what you created are actually very, very political. So one of my, um, I actually ran this by one of my students who's a keen gamer, and he mentioned um, a add-on or a uh, extra scenario. I don't know exactly the phrase for it, but for Hard Survival Four, I think, um, set in the interwar period in which there's been a spread of the Russian Revolution to the West. Um, and he said the book Lenin Lives reminded him very much of this particular add-on. And so I was very intrigued by this. But um, the, I guess, um, I suppose my only concern with that. With that kind of angle, is that it would l- to limit it to the geopolitical aspect of the of the scenario. So, just a strategy game would miss that kind of experiential dimension, which is what I, you know, I mean, I, I can recall that was one of the elements that I enjoyed the most about games when I when I was a gamer, um, back in high school. And it, I've I've never I mean and maybe it's just because I've not been gaming for a while, but I don't know if there is a game that is that successfully combines the that experiential kind of world feeling of inhabiting a world with 
um, significant kind of consequential and strategic decisions which can be played out and um, where you can kind of follow through the consequences of those decisions which affect the course of history. Yeah, I don't know if there's something if there's something like that. There might be, and I'm not thinking of it. Certainly, there are games where you make decisions and they have impacts. Um, sometimes big-ish impacts, but that's I think where you run into a, a just a resource issue. There's a sci-fi series, the Mass Effect games that. Uh, there's three three games in a row, and um, you import your save game from one to the other, um, and the decisions you make have consequences in the next game and in the game after that, and sometimes fairly big ones. But um, there's just the the problem of um, you know how many how many you know assets are we going to create in order to depict this? How many um, you know? Um, it's just the, the 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 sheer production effort of a lot of variations. Yeah. Uh, if if you want to have that real experience of being down on the ground and and experiencing the consequences of what you've done, yeah. rather than have a text pop up that tells you, oh, this is happening. How how do you want to react to it? Like that kind yeah. of thing you can do, but this kind of really you're in that world as events change thing is um is just difficult to do. Um, just purely because we don't have the money or the time. Or, yeah. So in, in a way, you can do it you know, with text. You can do it with uh, simplified graphics. Um, I mean, there certainly are games that have allowed a player to have some of that. But, but there's definitely a real limitation there that's purely a production thing. Oh. And it's a shame because I actually find that to be one of the most fascinating elements I think um, a couple of games have really sort of tried to engage with it. Um, there's a game called Dragon Age 2. I don't particularly like it, but it's set in one city over you know a, a period of time, and the decisions you make kind of affect things, and they really didn't have the resources to do it at all. Um, but still, the concept to me is, is very appealing, and it's one of the things I... I personally also really um, like about games and want to, you know, pursue in games this uh, the experience of history. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I wish we could do more of it. I hope we we will, you know, do more of it. Um, but as always with games, there's just so many constraints. Um, Jonas, I mean, hearing you talk about games made me really want to play them, uh, made me want to play yours in particular. I mean, the Sea Will Claim Everything sounds great. And actually, Talos Principle as well. I mean, I was saying before we started recording that uh, to these guys, you know, that we, uh, that, well, that, you know, I'm, I'm kind of very resistant to gaming, partly because I just see it as a time suck. And in fact, you know, hearing you describe uh, some of these best games, which have the kind of requisite depth, require an investment in time which you know all art does um and i'm for that reason i'm personally reluctant to get to to even buy a console because um i I worried like i'd never read a book again um and well you know uh something like talos it's it's, again it's great right so i'm really proud of that game people love it people have had very profound experiences with it it's also a puzzle game so you're also going to you know be solving uh, fairly hard puzzles after a certain point there's a shit ton of them so again if somebody doesn't like solving puzzles the narrative experience can just kind of you know suffer just be impossible to actually experience um 
And that's how I ended up making the sequel claim everything, which is a game where you literally just click on shit and read stuff. There's nothing else to it. <laughs> um, but but uh, but that's both the wonderful thing. Like if somebody's really into solving puzzles and having this narrative experience, they can have a fantastic experience from it. But if you don't really want to sit around trying to figure out uh, how this laser connects to that laser, um, then you might not you might not be able to enjoy all that other stuff that's also in there, but the gameplay is still kind of a defining part of the experience. Uh, there are games that are more purely, you know, text and decisions and things, and um, but but it's always this this balance between those two things, and I think that can that is both the best thing about the medium, but for someone like you, it could be very off-putting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I so I this brings me on to something that I wanted to ask about, and I'm trying to formulate the question in my head. Um, but it concerns play and the kind of infinite possibilities of entertainment and diversion that we have in late capitalism. Because the, I, you know, I, I think if you think about kind of like the situationists, for example, wanting to turn the world into play, you know, to turn real life and make it more joyous, uh, more spontaneous and creative. Um, and that, you know, gaming sort of offers that today. Um, and I guess, you know, do we think about it, think about gaming specifically as a type of play or, you know, would you prefer to see it in terms of art, as you've said before? Um, but also, how do you... And just, uh, yeah, yeah, go on, just to throw something else in there as well, which is, I guess, the the other side of that, which is the the gamification of culture of work um that it seems like we are being um implored in various different ways to, to to play games um collect points all of these kind of which maybe that's not there all, all there is to computer games or any other sorts of games of course but it seems like this um there's a culture imperative we have to enjoy ourselves both um you know in in things that that Kind of so that that kind of division between games and and work is being being eroded because work is work is a game. And I mean, just so just to complete my question because that's really useful what you said, George, um, is that I mean my personal resistance and I, this isn't about me, but I just wonder whether other people don't identify with this is that because there's so much kind of gamification and so much of a draw towards uh, various yeah various forms of diversion that actually I tried to make a deliberate effort not to do that so that I can go and, you know, quietly read a book and th <laughs> things like that. Um, so, I mean, I just wonder how you position yourself, you know, as a, as a game designer, as a game writer, um, with regard to these questions. Well, I mean, um, our games art is the most tedious discussion that we have nonstop <laughs> in video games for the last God knows how many years and it never ends. Um, to me, it's obvious that a lot of what we call games are art. I mean, it's a narrative experience. Somebody wrote it. Somebody, you know, acted it. Somebody, it has an intent. But then, the truth is, games are not one thing. Um, you know, Tetris is not a narrative experience yeah. of that kind. Now, I can uh, admire the genius that it takes to come up with that, um, and that's definitely amazing. And there are people who make things that are very hard to categorize that are somewhere between the two, right? Uh, and if they call it art, call it art. But of course, you know, I, I no. To me, it's not necessarily terribly meaningful to to. No, it's, it's not about whether I I I'm going to say whether Flappy Bird is art. Um, it's that some things very obviously are. They have you know artistic intent, and then other things are just not even the same medium. Essentially, um, they're just a totally different experience with a different different everything. So to me, these are essentially, if not separate, very distant 
from one another. And, and um, uh, so, uh, yeah, definitely some games are art, for sure. Many games are art. Some of them are shit art as well. I mean, it doesn't have to be good <laughs> yeah, to be art. That's, uh, the vast so, majority of games are <laughs> of shit, right? An often like, forgotten like, category, I mean, like, is it art? Yeah, but I mean, it, it's still shit. Um, no, I, I didn't mean yeah, to a- yeah. actually ask, you know, in the sense of, you know, is film, you know, is film good or something like that? Or is film art, you know, because that's a, it'd be a stupid question. And to apply that same lens to, to games would also be stupid, as, as you uh, rightly elaborate. Um, I guess my, my concern was more with regard to the question of diversion, um, you know, and how much yeah how you see that and how it relates to kind of gamification more broadly um i mean the the way that you describe the games that you worked on um very much seems to be you know very much an attempt to make art um and you know you wouldn't at all categorize that as as a kind of one of these kind of uh, i don't know yeah one of these attempts at at kind of diversion and and attention grabbing uh things that kind of um fill our mental space, you know, in a, in a regular day in which, yeah, I think we often, I think everyone probably tries to make an effort to kind of batten that down and kind of keep that, keep the, a lot of that noise out. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess, I guess it's, I'm, I'm kind of talking myself in. in no, 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 no. I, 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 I get it. I get it. Um, so, um, okay. There's, um, there's a whole world of things that are just very cynically designed to rot your brain. Uh, and I find those hideous. And they have, I think, a connection to um, gamification. Now, I don't object to something that's purely entertainment. I think we need that in life, just like I need to watch an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. Um, and it can have a couple of ideas in it, because otherwise it'll be boring, but it's still not you know, that deep, but it's entertaining. Uh, what I'm working on right now, uh, Serious Sam, that's fun. There's a couple of you know, ideas in there that are nice uh, and that give it a bit of, you know, whatever. But uh, still, the main uh, purpose of the thing is to be fun. Uh, But I think there's a healthy kind of fun. Um, And then there is this sort of designed to exploit features of your brain kind of fun. The the thing that's just like, uh, oh, play another level. Give us three golden coins Mm -hmm. to do this. Oh, no, your pet will Whatever. It's just this um sort of brain poison and that just sucks and i think that's that's almost this perverted version of gaming that gets pumped out by capitalism um to really exploit people i mean you know how a lot of these things um they only survive because some players have impulse control problems and they call them whales um and right. that's the people who will pay. You know, you're not going to get a thousand people to pay one dollar to get your stupid in-app purchase. You're going to get one crazy person to um, to buy a thousand. Uh, and and you're designing your game to find those people who have a problem and exploit them. Um, and that's insane, mm-hmm. and that's awful, and I, I despise that. And I think that's just that's not inherent to the medium, but that's a sort of a perversion of where we are uh, as a as a society materially. And um, gamification now is abhorrent. It works really well, um, and I'm, I'm not sure that it really really. Everybody, there are a lot of people in games that they say were a few years ago were always talking about gamification and how it's good. Or, and I'm just sort of horrified by it. Um, but I'm not sure that I have any particular insight on it, except that it 
exploits things about us that are good about human beings in order to make us work more. Mm. Um, but then again, I think everything is tending towards that now. Um, I mean, a lot of the, you know, woke capitalist stuff is trying to get you to feel good, to feel morally good about what you buy or what you, whatever, you know, it just, the, the, cause, yeah. because the system itself doesn't run properly anymore. They're now just sort of adding things on top to, to keep you um, occupied. Uh, and I can see the, the danger to, to an individual that you, that you no longer have any, um, any space for normal thoughts anymore. Um, we get so, you know, flooded with bullshit that yeah, it's it's hard to sit down and, and read a book sometimes and or 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 even maybe you know play a game or watch a movie or do something that's a bit more interesting or complex because you could also do the really, really dumb thing that um but I'm not yeah, sure no, that I have any insight. No, 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 I guess that. that's interesting, though, like the idea that games themselves, certainly much more um, demanding games, both, I guess, technically as well as um, uh, imaginationally to kind of throw yourself into it, really get deeply into the story and everything that would themselves suffer from what we'd identify as sort of gamification and, and other various forms of uh, content nausea. Well, I think that, sorry, just to just to um, refer back to something you said earlier about the the long experiences of some of those games i think the ones that have really sort of gripped you i think that's maybe a more general pervasive cultural um trait that it's difficult to it's more difficult to read a long book you read some of these kind of 19th century novels george Eliot. there's like 200 pages before anything happens and i think there's something about that need to invest in something which when you have all of these distractions and all of these quicker games is is very um is 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 a challenge and is not always easy to to achieve but maybe um on a little bit we've, we've talked a little bit about the gamification of culture but what do you make of the um i guess the off oft reviled uh, gamer culture is it actually is this actually a thing um and if it is is it sort of necessarily politically reactionary um, some analyses of, I guess, the alt-right or American gamer culture seem to suggest or presuppose? I don't think it's a thing. I mean, I think it's partially a thing, but um, it doesn't make sense to me to speak of gamer culture when it's this vast field um, and you've got all sorts of people playing games and also all sorts of people interacting with each other about games um like there's there's so many niches and so many different types of things and of course people are talking about the most obvious you know the youngest most vocal players who are of course many times reactionary because they live in a reactionary culture um uh but i don't think there's anything inherently reactionary about it and i think there's um <sighs> games were one of the first places where this um sort of it paul ping pong of doom between the oh everybody's a fascist and oh we are actually defending your blah 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 kind of the, the two poles started so you've got the people who um the the very cynical people who write these articles about how all gamers are terrible and then you have the also very cynical people who come in and like we will defend games from the intrusion of the so, uh, social justice warriors and and this is incredibly cynical on all sides um 
because there are many real problems and many real issues, but but you've just basically got these two people who keep escalating this conversation as, as if it was this the most important thing in the world. And most normal people in games are just sick of it or uninterested or um so um so i think a lot of those essays about how the you know the alt-right came from games or whatever it's nonsense um it's just really tired nonsense um but it's very easy for this to work because you know somebody comes in and they they say oh everybody who plays games is a reactionary then you get angry you know you're not politically educated you live in the world we live in now where you know you're never exposed to any different ideas and then uh you think oh shit this is this is offensive uh, i hate this person then somebody else comes in and says uh i will defend you and it's some you know far right twat who doesn't give a shit about games has probably never played mm-hmm. a game in his life um but then you think oh this person is defending me and my culture and of course there the problem comes in that you start you start having forms of identity politics. And I think this whole, oh, I'm a gamer, I must defend gaming, is just another form of identity politics, just a sort of a, a more right-wing one. Mm. Um, so, so maybe just to kind of um, wrap up on on some of these questions on gaming, art, politics, philosophy, before moving on to, to Greek politics, um, I think there's a, there's a brand of socialism. It's perhaps particularly almost puritanically British um, that seems games, including football, and drugs of all all sorts as a distraction from the true task of politics, true task of making socialism. And you can see many examples of this. Terry Eagleton's anti-footballism uh, is, is an example that comes to my mind. Um, I mean, as as socialists or what I, I don't want to kind of ask a trite question about, you know, what's the correct socialist position on games? But do do socialists have a problem with with having fun? Well, not to go all, you know, Emma Goldman on this, but like, what the fuck are we actually trying to achieve socialism for if it's not having fun at the end of it, <laughs> being free to do the things that we like to do? Um, so is there a, a very reactionary brand of something that calls itself left wing or socialist? I think so. Yes. Um, I, it makes no sense to me as a Marxist. It's just it's completely alien to me. For one thing. Um, the point I keep trying to make is that, well, it's not politics. I mean, like, um, one thing that I once wrote that I was fairly proud of is I wrote art is not, I wrote a, a little post that said art is not politics. Art can be political thematically, but it's not politics. You're not doing something political when you're engaging with art, nor should we delude ourselves as artists that what we do has a political effect. Um, it can have an intellectual effect on people. It's very interesting. It's very powerful, transcendent, whatever. But it's not actually doing politics. And and to me, that division makes sense. So it's just it's absurd for somebody who wants to organize the working class um, to to even have a position on this um, because it's not political. It's you know even even to say oh no games are good, games are bad is just culture war bullshit. Um, Mm-hmm. And and yeah, but yeah, but there's certainly a huge sort of puritanical chunk of the left that sees whatever is good or fun in human life as 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 bad um, for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, they usually come. I mean, you know, you see it right now. It's everywhere. It's it's. I think uh, what we call the left right now is um, even its idea of fun is not fun. Is kind of bureaucratic. So um, organized fun. Yeah. <laughs> 
so yeah maybe to move on to to the left and one of the the key sort of sites of, of struggle of the European left at least in in Greece um because we also wanted to talk a little bit about about Greek politics and so you sometimes comment online about about this and could you tell us a little bit about your background here and how it relates to to politics in Greece well I grew up in Greece I'm half Greek um despite my I have another bizarre accent to add to your collection of, of weird accents <laughs> on your show but um I I, I grew up here and um well I, I i left at some point obviously to go study and and work uh as a lot of people do here uh in germany actually sorry it's in germany when the crisis hit but of course i i come back a lot i spend a lot of time here and um i just experienced this as a greek person as a greek leftist i just uh as an ordinary greek leftist i just experienced this entire thing uh, and the effect it had on my family, on people here, and on politics here. So I, I have no other special uh, connection. I've never really, you know, I'm not part of any parties or, or things. I'm just uh, a Greek person who had to experience this. Um, so one of the big questions for the Greek left, and it's a theme we've um, visited a few times, but I think is still a lesson that's percolating on the European left, is thinking about what the failures of the Greek left, essentially, when the stakes were so high and so dramatic, as you indicate in what you just said about your own personal experience and your family's experience of the financial crisis in Greece. What's your explanation for the failure of Syriza? And why is it important that we read these events correctly, do you think? Because I know that um, there's a tendency on the left to um, quickly brush to one side uh, attempt to be attempts to make sure that the explanation is specific and precise with what happened uh, with Syriza. So, what's what's your take on it? Okay, so my take. Um, okay, I'll, I'll 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 give you a personal lens just for a second there. So, um, my hope and the hope of every leftist I knew was not that Syriza would cause some kind of massive change in Greek society or that they would even do all of the things that they said they would do. I, I know so many people who said if they just did 10%, if things just got a little bit better because they had been getting dramatically worse under government after government after EU-imposed non-elected government. And um, and that was all that our ambition was, right? Um, and uh, I remember thinking, okay, so from my analytical perspective, as a Marxist, a social democratic government serves capital. And in times of prosperity, it will redistribute a certain amount of money towards the poor and you know support the working class in some minor ways in order to uphold the rule of capital. But in a time of crisis, the social democratic government will serve capital. And that will mean imposing austerity and so on and so forth. This seemed like the correct analysis. I didn't want to believe that. Um, I thought, okay, but you know, that's too reductionist. That's too, uh, that's just too mechanical. You know, that's the, in the real world, Syriza has this long history and all these people who have been protesting in the street for 30 years. And there's this individual and that individual. And, um, yeah, I was wrong. Uh, because it does work that way. And, you know, the Marxist analysis, as simplistic as it is, 
is correct. And what happened was not a betrayal, except in the sense of a betrayal of the democratic mandate. It was simply a social democratic government doing what all social democratic governments in, in European history have done, which is serve capital. Uh, and they just turned around and they served capital and they became the most right-wing government we had had up until that point, not because they were inherently right-wing, but because capital required right-wing policies and they were the stewards um, of capital or of, of the system during that time. And there is no difference between them and the government before them. There's perfect continuity. Uh, and that became apparent pretty much immediately, and we all lied to ourselves. Um, it's almost a shame Bernie Sanders didn't win because then we could have observed the exact same process of, oh, I wonder why he's doing that. No, I'm sure it's a strategic thing. He's actually trying to play them and it's going to be some something. And then, hmm, that wasn't a very good choice, but they're under pressure. It's, there's probably an explanation and, oh, this is actually bad. And then at some point, oh, they've completely fucked us. Um, but... But yeah, we just deluded ourselves into thinking that a social democratic government would be any different than the SPD or Die Linke or Labour or any of that lot. And frankly, even before they got elected, they had absorbed a huge part of PASOK, and that should have been, um, you know, pretty clear. I had a friend. I have a friend. He's still alive. Who was um, sort of much more? His family was sort of much more involved with uh, with the party, and he told me. We don't recognize this party anymore because, I mean, even before, in my opinion, this was, um, you know, before Syriza blew up, it was a very academic, petit bourgeois kind of party. It was not a workers' party. It never was. That space is occupied by the Greek, you know, communist party, which is uh, sort, of just a sort of Stalinist dinosaur party. Um, but but it was never a working class party, and uh, but. But at that point, even the sort of, you know, more committed um, sort of uh, academic leftists were being driven out by by the sort of Basok people. And anybody in the party, from, from, from the first moment, anybody in the party, uh, from the first moment they got into power, anybody who was kind of inconveniently left-wing or had, uh, had plans to do something they didn't like or whatever – just got you know put into useless positions or whatever like it was very actually clear when you look back at it um that this just was the strategy from the get-go there was never going to be a confrontation with capital and ironically i think the only person who believed that there was going to be something is varoufakis who is yeah. this very strange man who is a so capitalist well okay so i think varoufakis is an honorable idiot um <laughs> like he believes what he says right i think he genuinely does um because he's also like taken positions that are not convenient to take like defending julian assange which is one of these things where everyone on the left is oh no we can't do that and he's actually done that which is very honorable um so i think he believes in what he does he, and he, why he thinks that he's some sort of erratic marxist is beyond me he's clearly a capitalist um but he is a capitalist who had some sort of cohesive plan and actually believed that they could improve things in a completely capitalist way. But still, that would have been better for Greece, possibly. But of course, his entire understanding of what situation he was in was completely delusional. 
like <laughs> he he didn't understand anything, and I'm not sure he's fully understood now either. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, you know what he's written about it. Uh, I think matches um, sort of what we saw from the outside quite well, which is that there really was never a true dedication um, to to any kind of left wing. Uh, policy except the typical left-wing thing of you know managing the affairs of capital in a slightly more humane way than the other side would which is the difference is very slight if it exists so when you mentioned the 10 percent of um what would have been you know enough um what would that 10 percent have been um from my so from an external perspective on the on the Greek um, crisis at the time, um, what struck me was that was interesting was so many people I know who would subsequently uh, support Remain in the 2016 referendum here in the UK were very supportive of a no vote Ahi in the Greek referendum of 2015. So when Syriza had this, uh, they had this referendum which it seemed they expected to lose on whether or not to accept the EU austerity package. And then they um, they won the referendum. The Greek people rejected the austerity package, but the government accepted it anyway. Um, and what I suppose, to my mind, that the only 10% that I wanted from Syriza was, that I didn't expect it, but the only thing that I thought would have potentially vindicated them was a willingness to walk away from the Eurozone and the European Union with all the... Um, uh, all the difficulties that would have entailed. But that seems to me, you know, I didn't expect them to establish socialism in Greece or anything like that. Simply what to do, what they could have done for the Greek people at the at the minimum was to observe the democratic mandate, like you say. So that was my kind of 10%, but I was curious to know what your 10% was that you um, hoped for at least a minimal program. Honestly, anything like people were so desperate and just like i don't know taking a stand on something they kept announcing oh we have a you know red line on this we're not going to go further than this we're not going to go further than that and they went of course further on everything but like defending i don't know something anything people's income people's like not getting kicked out of their homes people just literally anything um if if they had just not agreed to something, some cut, some uh, maybe you know privatizing all of our airports uh, for and, and and selling them to Fraport, um, so that now you know that bizarre arrangement they have where Greece basically pays for these airports, pays for upgrades, pays uh, right right now. Uh, the you know German uh, the the German airport company that's partially owned by the state, if I'm not mistaken. Um, is demanding money from Greece because they're not making any money because of coronavirus. So that's the arrangement we have, a completely colonial arrangement. And like any of these things, but they didn't resist on anything. Yeah. For God's sake, even once they signed, we could have at least expected them to say not um, support horrific police violence against everyone or, or to do something about Golden Dawn. The fascist organization, and I'm, you know, I'm uh, pretty much a free speech fanatic, but uh, Golden Dawn is not a, uh, it's not a free speech is issue because that's a criminal organization that literally stabbed people in the open. You know, they, th that's a paramilitary terror organization that needed to be stamped out. And they did shit about that. And now these people are, their buddies are back in power now. 
Uh, and they're all going to get away with with murder, literally. So, um, so, so they did absolutely nothing. And they were more vicious than the right wing governments before them. And all we wanted is for this nonstop austerity to maybe slow down a little bit instead of accelerate. Um, but they couldn't do that. They, they did. They did nothing. I don't think people understand this. Like. I see discussions with, uh, you know, European or American leftists, in inverted commas, um, mm. about about this, where they're like, well, you know, they tried and they didn't really. No, you don't understand. This was the most right wing government we've ever had. Yeah, like the, it was insane. It was hilarious because they would like, you know, announce that they're opposing police violence while literally sending the police to beat people up at the same time. Um, but it, it was an awful, incredibly right-wing government. Um, and of course, yeah, the referendum thing is a whole separate discussion um, because that that really can only be described as a betrayal. Uh, that can be that is treason what they did. I mean, it's literally treason because um, it's unconstitutional. Uh, they had the obligation to do what uh, the people told them to do, which is no. Yeah. Uh, and that was, and, and just the fact that we can ignore that, that anybody who calls themselves a leftist yeah. can, can ignore such a massive anti-democratic action. It, to me says, anybody who does it is not a leftist. You're, you're not on the left, you're not a supporter of democracy, you're some kind of parody. Because that's just not in. That, that, that's, that's fundamentally not acceptable, that if the people vote something, you do the opposite. Mm. In that case, you are the enemy of the people. The end. Especially, especially um, when... It, sorry, just to jump in, because I think yeah. it's interesting um, in terms of... In relation to kind of making excuses along the lines of what you're hinting at. You know, that basically, yes, they had this referendum, but, you know... Um, and you know, you use the term, you know, you yourself as a Marxist, you see things in a certain way, the social Democrats are always going to behave in a certain way and uh, act in the interest of capital in the ultimate in the final analysis. Um, and yet, a lot of the kind of supposedly Marxist left, their interpretation of what happened in Greece was um, an exercise often, I think what I would see is sort of excuse making. That, yes, but, you know, as serious Marxists, as serious materialists, we have to look at the structural conditions and that Greece leaving the Eurozone would have been led to complete devastation, would have been awful, etc. Um, and anyway, would still have been capitalism. So how can you justify that? And therefore, um, and therefore, you know, series that probably did the intelligent thing in, in not seeing through the, the referendum. Um, and I think, I mean, there's two separate questions here. One is the, the, the question of democratic betrayal, which I entirely agree with you. Um, but then I think that argument uh, often ends up in a situation which you're asked, where you try to put it, well, I mean, I say the people who are making excuses try to put that question aside and go, yes, but, you know, ignoring that for a second, um, leaving the Eurozone would have been devastation. So, I mean, what do you, what do you think of that? I mean, like... I guess to, to kind of place to, to make a sort of devil's advocate argument, um, you know, that that wouldn't have been leaving the eurozone wouldn't have been socialism uh, and it would have led to economic devastation and you definitely wouldn't have gotten your 10 percent there. OK, so um, wait, what are the two parts of the question? <laughs> 
Sorry about that. I was a bit rambly. Uh, no, I, I think I totally agree. leaving to one side the question of the democratic legitimacy of the, of the referendum and the 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 obligation that imposed on the series of government of following that through. Putting that to one side, uh, the question of leaving the eurozone, um, whether that um, there you don't even get your ten percent. Well, okay. So first of all, I can't really leave aside the the democratic question because it it kind of is really important to. Um, to this because it doesn't matter if we're going to get socialism from it. Um, you're not going to get a socialism if you first start by ignoring the people. Yeah. Um, so that's that's completely essential. Like Those people keep putting it aside, but it cannot be put aside because it's the foundation of the entire goddamn concept of you know a, a, a workers' movement to liberate humanity and the working class. Um, like you can't. What are we? What are we aiming at? China? Stalinism? No, we're aiming at you know genuine socialism. If we are, then democracy is not an optional little thing that may, may when it's convenient. But you know, if the people are wrong, um, that's not an option. Um, so in, in this particular case, that's just it's it's non-negotiable that you could never go anywhere by rejecting that. Like the moment you reject uh, the results of the referendum you've already made any possibility of any socialist movement or any anything anything even resembling socialism already completely impossible now actually leaving the eurozone um this is complicated because uh okay first of all the idea that leaving the eurozone would have been economically devastating is absurd because we were already fucking devastated mm -hmm. like the country was just in ruins i mean it already was economically um so that's that's one of the most laughable things. Is like, what would they have done to us, like what that they hadn't already done, like or that didn't happen anyway? It's always like, see, I was always like, oh, you know, we're gonna do some 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 countermeasures to it, so it's not gonna be a oh, bullshit, absolute bullshit, nothing. It's exactly the same thing. So I mean, the worst case scenario already happened. It was Syriza. It was staying. So things couldn't have couldn't would not have gotten any worse economically. Um, and there are some arguments that things might have gotten a little bit better. It's not socialism, um, nor do I believe in uh, some sort of nationalist uh, solution. Like long term, Greece, even a revolutionary Greece, could obviously not hold out. So, like socialism in one country is not possible. It would always have needed the support of the European working class. But in order to get there, we have to start somewhere. Yeah. And opposing the EU in that situation was absolutely necessary. Now, where would that would have led? That's a very, very complicated question, how that could have played. But the significant thing is that a, an unbelievable majority um, of the Greek population, including conservatives, including people on the far right, voted no. In a situation where the propaganda was nonstop, like, in Greece, the media are owned by like five guys, and they're all on the far right, and like they're all, which in Greece means they're pro EU, um, uh, as in you know many places except Britain, where everybody thinks that being pro EU is a, some sort of left wing position. Um, <laughs> so, so they're all the state media, all these you know, the oligarchs that you keep hearing about, they're all pro EU, um, and so it was wall to wall propaganda, really, really extreme propaganda from the moment Sears I got elected 
but it's especially there that like you know we're, we're going to be turned into like i don't know syria libya it's going to be civil war we're going to die we're going to the supermarkets are all empty mm-hmm. they weren't empty um like i was here during that the, all of that like also what was you know shown in the media worldwide was just completely made up um so uh under those conditions and also with eu politicians openly threatening the greek people that they would be punished like completely openly just not even pretending that a democratic referendum is something you shouldn't meddle in um under those conditions a vast amount of people voted no now that's not socialism but if you're a left-wing movement a genuine socialist movement you could not be in a better position you had more support there than anybody in Greek politics has had in like the history of Greek politics going back mm-hmm. two and a half thousand years. Um, like the last time this many people agreed, it was about not letting the Persians take over. Uh, <laughs> and, and still, you, they betrayed it. Um, so the, the, the magnitude of that, mm-hmm. um, the apathy that that has led to, um, is just is unbelievable. Because everybody was was ready, and where it would have led, I don't know. It would have led to confrontation. Would we have le- lost the confrontation? Maybe, or maybe some sort of you know better compromise would have been reached, and then there would be more struggles ahead. Or I'm not particularly utopian about this. I don't think that it would have you know, immediately solved every problem. But if there was a chance to make a beginning against austerity in Europe, it was that. That was the moment. Um, because the support was there in a way it's not been there for anything else. And, and um, well, being social Democrats, uh, they wasted it. I think that's, uh, yeah, very, very well put. A lot a lot to agree with in that. And maybe just as a final sort of shorter question, because I don't think, you know, none of us have a crystal ball here to, to, to predict this. But given the apathy and given the, the, the state of the Greek left at the moment, you know what? What what could come next um, in in this in this movement? Are you do you have any optimism for for new struggles, or is it um, is it is the Greek left going to be living in the sort of shadow of Syriza for for a, a while to come? Well, <clears throat> I am optimistic in the sense that I have uh, maybe a slightly religious like faith in the uh, in humankind. Um, but, um, uh, on a day-to-day basis, I don't have a huge amount of hope. I think right now we have recreated the Pasok Demokratia two-party state that we used to have. Um, with Syriza just taking the place of Pasok and being the same thing, uh, and it'll, you know, alternate between them and nothing will happen. They'll all have the same politics. And whatever is now left-wing, you know, Caesar used to be like, I don't know, three, four, whatever percent party, maybe a bit more, I don't know. There used to be a tiny party. So that whatever segment has either splintered into various idiotic parties or a lot of it, I think, is being captured by sort of imported American, you know, quasi-anarchist identity politics. Um I think in Greece, um, the stuff had never caught on previously, but I think now it's gonna it's gonna catch on, and we're gonna lose ourselves in culture wars and 
And it works, I think, fairly well because Greece is a very conservative country. The church is very powerful. There's definitely some racism here and there, even though it's, of course, not even remotely the racism of America. And it makes absolutely no sense to import all these categories and start calling people white and, and whatever, all this absurd, uh, you know, sort of cultural imperialist nonsense that, that, uh, that keeps happening. But, but I think that's where it's going to go because it's young people and they, they see their politics, they get their politics off the internet and that means America. And uh, this is the, this is, you know, politics of powerlessness. This is, this is what you do when nothing's really happening and, and you want to pretend that you're doing something. You get angry about cultural stuff while they're literally ripping off every piece of property that you have, every, every last euro that you have. Um, and, and I'm afraid that the sort of protest left, which is anyway in Greece, I think far too in love with symbolic actions, is, is going to be... Uh, tending towards, you know, various um, performative anarchist things that do nothing. Uh, now, of course, the material conditions are going to keep getting worse, and um, coronavirus has had a huge impact that is not yet felt. Um, not because it killed a lot of people so far; it hasn't. But of course, now we've, you know, uh, everybody, all the tourists are going to come here, and they're going to bring um, every single sort of. Form. I mean, okay, there's there's not that many various forms of coronavirus yet, but um, we're going to get all of them anyway. Like we're going to um, we're going to get coronavirus from every country. Um, I don't know what the impact of that will be. We'll see, but because uh, the, obviously the healthcare system is a is a disaster. But even without the coronavirus, um, it, like the specific um, the fact that it kills people, the impact on um, the tourist industry is is just devastating uh because that's the last industry that's still standing in this country so um things are going to get even worse um but unfortunately things can keep getting worse without not ever anything really happening um so where where's the beginning of a workers movement that can actually do something i don't know i have no hope for the communist party um you know, there's like five or six good people in that party uh, sort of at the lower ranks. But as a party, it's just a party of dinosaurs that are more interested really in backstabbing each other or complaining about this committee or that committee than doing anything. Um, and um, uh, the rest of the left is just shattered. Mm-hmm. Um so if if something, you know, my hope, of course, is always that at some point something will come from the actual working class, mm. not from academics, not from anarchists, or you know, the 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 children of sort of uh, impoverished middle class families, um, but actually from the working class. But um, I'm very afraid that uh, that that will be captured by the right. Um, you know, because if we go towards the whole culture war thing, then they can yeah. very easily just appeal to family tradition and just the normal everyday experience of of Greek people. Mm. And if they then offer a little bit of an economic incentive, um, you know, it's then do I, do I choose the neoliberal who tells me that I'm a horrible, racist, misogynist pig? Or do I choose the guy who says it's good to be Greek and we're going to give you a little bit of money? Uh, mm. No, I, I think I think that that picture as you as you paint it has a lot of um a lot of similarities with with the situation facing the left across the Euro- across europe and probably 
more more widely as well. I think that's not not the most most optimistic, but I think <laughs> I think a, a, a great place to um to leave it. Just to say, you know, thanks so much for a, an extremely interesting and uh, wide ranging discussion, Jonas. Um, you're you're welcome. I'm sorry I didn't say anything more interesting about games. I feel that um. <laughs> I think that I, I tend to always try to make games less special. Everybody always tries to impose some sort of, you know, like games are unique because it's like, and you know, most things are, are sort of exist in the same, whether it's Greek politics or games, uh, it, it all exists in the same sort of horrible capitalist um, chaos where there are some good things and a lot of awful things and, and none of it, has the answer or the solution none of it is that special or will somehow give us this one insight uh that we need when you, i heard you saying uh you know stalinist every time you said stalinist dinosaur i <laughs> thought of an actual stalinist dinosaur um and i thought you know you could have a game showing kind of the evolution of the left through the you know you have a stalinist dinosaur and then you have like a, a trotsky rex and then uh you know, you <laughs> i don't know just an idea. Just I did one. I did once want to make a game about. I started making a game about. Um, was it uh, sp- like communist space cats or something? Oh, and uh, you played uh, Leon Trotz Kitty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, this is the game that is going to get Alex into gaming. My 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 cat's name is is Sputnichka, so um, you know that's right up my street. Um. Okay. Well. Um, that I was hope wonderful. That was... Thank you very much. Yeah, that was yeah. great. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. So I, I should have been more decisive, saying that's a wrap, but I, I didn't. It was. It, it's a wrap. It's. It was a wrap. <laughs> it's wrapped. It's been wrapped. <laughs>